also knew that um, it wasn't just going to be about photos because for me, I'm not just a photographer, you know, so I, I do a lot of reporting, I, I write a lot, I, I, you know, for me, they go hand in hand. And so I did want to include sort of my growth, my mental growth, you know, and what better way to do that than through personal letters, which are embarrassing at times and really kind of like, my God, I was so naive and so young and whatever. But that's part of the process. You know, I think you have to have um, a little humility in this profession to be able to kind of move forward and to learn. And so I think that was a really important part of doing this book. Welcome to the We Are Photographers podcast from Creative Live. I'm your host, Kenna Klosterman, bringing you true stories from behind the lens and behind the lives of your favorite photographers, filmmakers, and creative industry game changers. From their struggles to their wins, we get the real human stories about why they do what they do. I believe there is something to learn from everyone's story. Listen, get inspired, and discover why in the end, your creative journey is all worth it. Lindsay Adario is an American photojournalist who has been covering conflict and humanitarian crises around the Middle East and Africa on assignment for the New York Times, National Geographic, and Time Magazine for over two decades. She's covered conflicts in Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Lebanon, Darfur, South Sudan, Somalia, and the Democratic Republic of Congo. In 2015, American Photo Magazine named Lindsay as one of the five most influential photographers of the past 25 years saying she's changed the way that we see the world's conflicts. Lindsay is the recipient of numerous awards, including a MacArthur Fellowship, a Pulitzer Prize, and two Emmy nominations. Her book is a New York Times bestselling memoir entitled It's What I Do, which chronicles her personal and professional life as a photojournalist coming of age in the post 9-11 world. In October 2018, Lindsay released her first solo collection of photography, of love and war. This is We Are Photographers with Lindsay Adario, and this is her story. Lindsay Adario, thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Um, I often on the podcast uh, like to start with um, some most recent work, and I was telling you that uh, this morning, and you forwarded uh, to me, which I had seen yesterday online, but the, the cover of the New York Times. And so I would love to talk a little bit about um, this work, as well as the coronavirus work that you have been doing there in the UK as well. Um, so this image... Um, I, I will put in the link um, to to the story. Is the the big image is so so powerful. Um, yeah. You've done a lot of work uh, with in showing maternal mortality and births, and we'll talk about that. Uh, but tell us about this story and um, why it was important for you to cover. So um, the the initial reason why I went to Texas from London, obviously, it's a big decision to fly across the Atlantic in the middle of a pandemic. But um, I had been working on another story for The New York Times for about three years. And it's a story that sort of I stumbled upon and I started reporting it and photographing it and I brought it to The New York Times. And so um, the writer that they eventually assigned was Caitlin Dickerson, who is an incredible writer, uh, immigration writer and reporter for the New York Times. And so 
we started working on that together about a year ago. And um, about a month ago, she decided she wanted to go to McAllen, where we sort of where was the heart of that story, and update that story post pandemic, or well, it's obviously still going on in the United States, but sort of at that time. And so I had to go through obviously a series of security calls and and could I even fly to Texas from London and what you know what would I have to do to make that happen and in the interim she ended up getting access um, to a sort of larger story at this hospital on how this hospital the doctor's hospital at Renaissance was overrun with COVID and so it was we ended up working on two stories and. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 been fascinating because I was trying to get into hospitals in the United Kingdom where I live for, you know, months before I could get access. And would they only really let me in when things were very calm and very quiet and sort of the wards, all of the extra wards that had been allocated to COVID had cleared out and they were sort of back down to a reasonable, manageable number of COVID patients. And um, whereas in Texas and McAllen, when we were at this hospital, it was sort of peaking. And that was something I hadn't seen. And there were beds, you know, they had sort of taken over a warehouse in a hospice unit, filled it with beds. Uh, there were curtains separating people. It was, um, you know, the medical staff was exhausted. They were working around the clock. And so it was what I did not get a chance to see in the United Kingdom. Mm. I mean, just just describing that scene alone, you know, it's I, I don't want to go too far into um, you know politics or whatever, but sure. you know, part of part of what I understand to be why you do what you do is to show the images that people don't want to see, um, and 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 so again, this this. I encourage everybody to go see this image where a woman is has just given birth, like literally cutting the umbilical cord, and the headline says you know, she can't give birth or she can't hold her newborn baby because she she has COVID. Yeah, and I mean it, that is a devastating situation for anyone, and particularly women who have given birth themselves know that it's it's you know you've carried you've sort of made and carried this child for months, and and then suddenly you can't even hold them, and so we actually got access to both a cesarean section and a, a vaginal birth, a normal birth, and. And in both cases, the mother couldn't even hold her own child. She, they, they sort of held up the child, and it, it's just devastating. You know, it's it really spoke volumes about where we're at. That you know, four months into the pandemic, the numbers are rising. And especially, I mean, a, a lot of the work that you do is um, highlighting injustices in the world, and so we know it is a fact that. Um, underserved populations are, you know, that there's, there's, um, systemic racism in, in the medical world and in, in sure. healthcare. And, yeah. and so mm. what was telling, like, how does this, how does a particular story for you, maybe this particular story sort of reflect again, this, this bigger picture. Um, and, and again, like that, that, particular hospital, those particular individuals? 
Sure. I mean, look, there, there are many different things at play in that particular story. I mean, we're looking at the overall picture of, you know, the United States in July is still having, you know, rising number of cases, still running out of ICU beds in various states across the country. Uh, the numbers are extraordinary. And that is sort of one angle of the story. The other angle of the story is in the Rio Grande, um, you have an extremely poor population whose, um, you know, their risk factors sort of, they, they sort of map onto the risk factors for COVID. So there's a high level of diabetes. There's a high blood, high blood pressure, obesity. All of these things make you more vulnerable to, to having uh, COVID in a severe, you know, sort of getting severely ill. Um, also, there are a lot of undocumented people living in that area. It is right at the border with Mexico. And so many people don't have health insurance. And so there are so many different factors. And, and so that story for me was really important to do because I feel like it encapsulates so many of the different issues that we're talking about. We've talked about, we've seen the statistics that people of color are more likely to um, to die from COVID. Um, and so I think that also played into it. There's a large Latino population that lives there. And so this was, these are all things that we looked at. What does it um, take in terms of your relationship with editors and the decisions to, to put a birth image on the cover <laughs> of the New York Times? Well, because I, I think mean, that that's... Power. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's it's powerful. I mean, I was I was really happy. I mean, I you know, look, I've freelanced for the New York Times for 20 years now. It's a right. long time, and I you know, I love the New York Times. I still I still get really excited when one of my pictures is on the front page. So I think I think um, you know, for me. I never know what they'll end up going with. I never know what they will, you know, sort of what the ultimate image will be. And I always, and I also, you know, a birth image is touchy. There was another birth image that I was also sort of fighting for that was the C-section. And, and I think that was, it was a little graphic. And I, and for me, you know, I always look at birth as like, it's beautiful. It's extraordinary. It is like, we need to see this. And, you know, I have to remember that I've seen so much in my life that most people haven't seen. So I don't, I don't think of something like that as graphic so much as being beautiful. Well, it's, that's what is, um, to me, so inspiring about your work is that, um, it, and whether it's, you know, maternity, you know, whether it's birth or death, um, is there's life is beautiful. And, and, um, and so bringing that, that dignity to, um, whatever, whatever the story is and, and, um, and creating, yeah, creating a, an emotion, I feel like that is beautiful. Um, sure. whether that's, I mean, that's human, you know, yeah. beauty can be raw and hard as well. Sure. Um, sure. Of course. So let's go back then to, um, the, the Nat Geo assignment. Um, and you mentioned earlier, um, that you, you couldn't get access to, uh, to hospitals in the beginning. And also I've read that, you know, you talking about 
you know, normally you are out in the field somewhere, you know, across in the world and the, the story is happening all around you, but now the story is where you're living. Um, and yeah. so getting access is a, a different story. And then you decided to yeah. flip it and start covering death and, and funerals. And to me, when I started to see that work, it was like people weren't showing that side of it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, I, I, what surprised me sort of about the pandemic overall globally is how access really varied from country to country. And I've never, I've lived in London for nine years and I have never worked here. I've never, I don't take assignments usually where I live because I like to have separation between sort of my personal and professional life. And um, so when the pandemic started, I thought, well, I'll go to New York. I'll just like sort of get my family settled and jump on a plane and go to New York. I didn't realize, of course, I've never lived through a pandemic that you can't fly and that, you know, so, so that was taken off the table. And then when I started watching the numbers in the UK rise um, and really sort of surpass Italy and, and really just sort of extraordinary numbers, I realized I wasn't seeing any visuals out of the UK on what these hospitals look like. I mean, there were sort of, there were a few documentary crews that got in. There were, you know, the BBC and, and Sky and all of the sort of domestic channels got in. Very sort of, good reports, but not like mind blowing. You know, I certainly didn't feel like terrified when I saw it, which is what you should feel when you're witnessing a pandemic, when you're watching, you know, the UK now has over 44,000 recorded deaths. And I think, you know, I, I, for me, I wasn't seeing that. So I tried to, I put in all these applications to get, get into hospitals. I was not getting in. People were either politely saying we're not allowing journalists or just ignoring me completely or just rude. <laughs> and then I thought, you know what, let me look at funeral homes because they are sort of the other frontline workers. You know, they are the people handling the victims. Um, and so that started kind of very slowly in Somerset in the West Country where I was in isolation with my family. Um, presented a lot of issues for me personally because I realized, you know, I'm not used to having my family around me when I'm working and putting myself oh, at risk. And so I then, for the first time, had to worry about bringing something home to them. Um, so there was, you know, I had obviously all of the PPE that I had ordered sort of at the very beginning, um, and I had to disinfect before entering the house and do this whole procedure. But that was also very stressful because we were staying with my in-laws and it wasn't even our house. So that's another thing because, you know, my husband and I have a sort of system where he understands and he trusts me with the risks that I take, whereas his family doesn't necessarily no, you know, maybe they trust me, but like they, they're not used to being in those situations. So there were so many levels um, and so many sort of hoops to jump through before I can even start photographing. Um, and then I started in Somerset, I started uh, sort of all around where I was. And then eventually at some point knew that I had to get back to London and then started continuing that work in London sort of mid to end of May. Um, and the funeral homes were still full. I mean, the first funeral home I went to uh, in Surrey, south of London, had 40 bodies still, COVID deceived, COVID victims that they had not buried yet. So, you know, I was shocked that I hadn't been seeing images like this in the British media. You know, for me, I, I, I was like, what, 
where, who, wh what are the photographers doing? What's going on? And so that was really interesting for me. Do you think it was the lack of access or the lack of the, of, of people just not wanting to no. see that? I mean, I, you know, I don't, I, I'm, I can't sort of obviously yeah. judge anyone, but I think, you know, I talked about it with one of my editors and, uh, he made a very astute point that in many places, photographers are used to just having the writer or having an editor get them access and then they go and shoot. But in this case, I had to work months to get the access. I mean, I had to go have preliminary meetings with the funeral directors, show them, you know, put on a suit every day, show them that I was respectable, you know, send them the links to my work, send them my books. You know, I had to really like make them show them that they could trust me with people's one of, you know, their sort of clients, if you can call clients, but they're the family's most sort of intimate moments because these are family run funeral homes and they are, you know, they have been dealing with families for generations and they certainly don't want a photographer coming in and being disrespectful to families who are in mourning. Well, as I'm listening to you talk about that, it's almost like, um, you know, in reading your memoir and, and your photo book, which in your, in of love and war, you have, um, letters that you have written back to family members and friends from the very, you know, early days of your career that, and so I'm curious if, did, did you feel like you were kind of back in the early days? Um, and is there a, a, a <laughs> something that you can kind of, a story you can share with the audience of, of something I similar? Mean well, look, like I always feel like I'm in the early days of my career. I never, I'm always hustling. I'm always researching. I'm always trying to, to get access to something and always trying to pitch assignments. I mean, it is not, you know, I, I was very lucky that National Geographic backed the work and they ended up um, putting me on assignment. And then I got a, an emergency COVID grant from the National Geographic Society. And so I think, you know, I, I was lucky, but it's not. I always feel like I'm at the beginning of my career because nothing is just, nothing is handed to me. You know, I have to work really hard to get access to do the research and, and to do these stories and to get them published. And I think that's so interesting because I think it's, it's for, you know, the photographers out there and, and, you know, people who are already photojournalists are hoping to be like you, you kind of think of, um, somebody like yourself who, you know, has had this incredible career and, and so, you know, knowing that like, you're still consistently, um, working is, you know, it, it just gives that much for me that much more respect in terms of what, how hard it is, um, to, sure. to follow that path. Um, sure. I'm, I'm curious if we can go back, um, to, uh, some of some of those early times, and um, you have covered a lot of conflict, as we mentioned at the beginning, and anybody who is familiar with with your work. And I'm I'm wondering, um, you uh, there was a line in the book, um, uh, the moment that was about the moment that I realized what was important to me in photojournalism was documenting injustice. Is is that a moment that you can take people back to? Um, in, in terms of how I you, mean, yeah, 
It's tough because I think it was cumulative. I mean, I think that sort of, you know, as a as a young woman, I, like anyone else, sort of started to internalize my experiences and witness things and and they would become part of sort of my 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 subconscious. And I and I at some point I realized like there were certain things like injustice, like racism, like, you know, uh, human rights abuses, like everything, you know, injustices against women, you know, all of those things were things that sort of infuriated me. And so at some point I realized, well, the only thing I can do is sort of document those things and put them out there. And, you know, obviously as journalists, we are supposed to sort of extract ourselves from the story, but we are, you know, just by virtue of doing the stories that I choose to do, obviously one can see sort of my, what, how I feel about certain things. And I think, you know, so going back, it was, I sort of started my international career in Argentina and I was looking at the mothers of the Plaza de Mayo and they were, they were sort of march in protest for their disappeared sons. Um, that was 1996. And then going to Afghanistan when it was under the Taliban and photographing women and just interviewing women about how, what were the things that they really, that really sort of, um, not only hurt them, but demoralize them. What were the worst things for them about living under the Taliban? Was it wearing a burqa, like we just assumed? Or was it more that they couldn't be educated? They couldn't educate their daughters. They couldn't work, you know? So all of these things sort of built together how widows in India were ostracized and they were sort of pushed out of their homes when their husbands died. That was something that I had never known before. As an American woman, you don't hear, you can't fathom that if your husband passes away, then somehow you're not worthy even of existing, you know? And so I think all of these things collectively um, helped sort of shape my, what would become like my mission as a photographer. And I think, you know, then covering the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq, where, you know, it, the sort of gravest realization for me was that my country lied, you know, that my, as an American, you know, we fabricated the reasons to go to war. And I think, you know, there's a story in the New York Times Magazine with Colin Powell. There's a, there's an interview with him this week talking about sort of how he still is humiliated by that and how he went in front of the UN and talked about weapons of mass destruction. Well, I remember being sort of you know, one of the journalists waiting in northern Iraq for for to find those weapons of mass destruction. So I think all of this stuff for me is sort of built, you know, it's taken years to become the woman I am and the journalist that I am. And and it's it is interesting because it's um, you can at this point in time sort of do that, like looking backwards uh, and. Um, and seeing those, you know, the patterns and, and what you've been, what you've been, um, called to or drawn to or sought, sought, you know, the stories that you, yet that you seek out and especially, um, with, with women, um, mm -hmm. in, in particular, um, I mean, you've, you've covered, uh, as I mentioned earlier, um, um, mortality of, of women, um, dying in terms of childbirth. dying yep. of childbirth for over 10 years. H have you seen, I mean, I, I can only imagine that you, you do the work because you want people to see it. You want people to change, make change. Um, and can you tell us a little bit about that whole body of work and why it is 
um, something that you continue um, to to tell. And again, it's like sure. like you said, these things that we don't even know are happening in the world. Yeah, I mean, I guess maternal health is kind of um, in that respect is is an easy that's sort of an easy explanation because people assume that childbirth is sort of it's been going on since the beginning of time and it's it's uh, we take it for granted. Um, because most people don't know that when I started this work sort of in 2009, over 500,000 women a year were dying in childbirth. And so people never really talked about it because it's not a sexy topic. I mean, it's childbirth. And so, you know, when I started learning that and, and I, I started researching more, I thought it, it coincided with when I won or when I was named a MacArthur Fellow. And that fellowship enabled me um, four years of just being able to work, you know, without no strings attached, without worrying about, you know, where I would get the money and who would publish it. And so I decided to sort of throw myself into that work first. And I went to Sierra Leone. And one of the first things I saw, literally one of the first hospitals I went to in the provinces, within the first day, a woman hemorrhaged in front of me on camera. And that very luckily, um, Kira Pollock, who was the photo editor of Time Magazine at the time, she published that work. She helped publish that work in eight pages in Time Magazine. One of the board members of Merck, the pharmaceutical company, saw that body of work and saw a video that I had made also sort of in real time documenting Mama Cisse passing away. And he just started showing it to all the board members at Merck. And they ended up starting Merck for Mothers based in part on that series and putting aside $500 million to fight maternal death. And I think for me, that was sort of that gave me a confidence. I had, I, I didn't even know that until a few years later, but when I did learn that, that sort of showed me, you know, it is worth everything we put into these stories. If you can affect one person, you know, if I, as a photographer can educate one person, if I can help one person, you know, that's enough for me. And I, I, it's, that's amazing. I didn't know that part of the story in terms of Merck. Um, and, um, I mean, were there, were there times where you weren't sure if it was enough for you? I mean, I guess <laughs> I, I can answer my own question, but, um, maybe people out there I mean, may not there... know some of your story where you were, yeah. you know, kidnapped, uh, twice, um, you know, many yeah. days I, in Libya. Libya was, uh, <laughs> Libya was a low point. I mean, can I you think... describe that for people who aren't familiar? Oh my or God. Maybe not describe so it. <laughs> I mean, it, I mean, I would say read my book. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Detail. Exactly. Um, you know, I was covering the popular uprising in Libya for the New York Times. I, on that, I had been working on the front line for about three weeks at that point. Um, there was very, very heavy combat on the front line between uh, the rebels in eastern Libya and Gaddafi's military coming in from the west. We would literally just stay in the middle of the battle, uh, retreat at night to sleep uh, in private residences that had sort of opened their homes up to the journalists uh, because they were so grateful we were covering the uprising. Um, and after a few weeks, um, I was going to pull back to Benghazi, which is Eastern Libya, just to sleep, like to rest, because I had had, I had been sort of in the throes of very heavy combat for, for too long, for me, you know, my tolerance. 
And at that point, um, I was working with Tyler Hicks and Anthony Shadid and Stephen Farrell, all for the New York Times. Basically, we were covering the front line. The front line started moving in very quickly. We were in the town of Ajdabia. Um, and Qaddafi's soldiers, in short, overran the city, uh, put, sort of uh, set up a checkpoint on the exit toward the east, and we ran into that checkpoint. Uh, we were taken hostage, kept for a week, uh, beaten, blindfolded, threatened with execution, put in jail, uh, sort of paraded through the desert like medieval prisoners. Um, and it was tough. I mean, it was very, very tough. But I think, you know, that was a low point, but I never, you know, I never said I'm going to quit this work. I mean, it wasn't a point. I've never in my life thought I would walk away from what I do. You know, I... I have thought maybe I need to make some modifications so I don't end up losing my mind. You know, I think it's really important for me personally to be in touch with, um, you know, my own sense of, of stability and, and fear and what I need in my life. Um, you know, I've been through, it takes a toll on my personal life. I mean, there's no question, you know, I can't, still to this day believe I have a personal life, you know, so I think there's a lot, you know, in this profession that, um, that's hard. I'm curious if, uh, you know, you said, oh, that's boring when I asked you about it. I'm curious if it feels like when you're, you know, a musician and you're, you're asked to like sing that, that same song yeah. over and over yeah. and over again. So. I mean, for me, it's like, I've told that story so many times. I never want to tell it again, but I, that was like a very, you know, two minute recap. So, but I think I, I believe for, you know, for, for people. And again, yes, go, you know, read Lindsay's book, um, books. Uh, uh, but it's just to me, that story, um, just, it really does encapsulate, you know, this concept of, of, um, the ultimate commitment uh, to, you know, to to bring light to stories that other people, you know, don't want to tell necessarily or, or, or aren't willing to go to. Um, and rightfully so, you know, like it's not for everybody. Yeah, right? no, no. And I think, you know, I think the interesting thing about the Arab Spring actually was that uh, a lot of photographers just decided it wasn't for them, you know, covering conflict, um, we had a lot of uh, colleagues die, get killed in during the Arab Spring, and and I think a lot of uh, photographers just stepped back and said enough. You know, it's it's too selfish, and we put our families through too much, and 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 rightly so. I mean, it really it is not for everyone, and it is um, it's not easy. Yeah, I mean, people may not know again that we're, you are right now quarantining from your family as you did just fly, you know, halfway across the world to to do this story that we talked about at the beginning uh, in Texas. And um, and it, you talk to me about your husband, Paul, and the support, you know, like his, <laughs> you talk a lot about him in the book as well. And like, I want to give this man a hug. Like, he's, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> um, I know, what does funny. it mean to have that? That, um, that I, well, I, you know, I have to say most of my adult life until I met Paul, I sort of just assumed I would be single my whole life because I had tried 
desperately to have love in my life. And I was sort of the ultimate romantic and thought, you know, yes, I could run off to war and yes, I'll come home and there will be a man waiting. And sure, I can leave him for three months sitting alone in my empty apartment in Istanbul. And of course he'll be waiting for me. I mean, I don't know what I was thinking. That's obviously being young. But I think, um, you know, when I met Paul, he was a journalist as well. And he was sort of equally dedicated to his career. Um, he, he, so he wasn't threatened by my own work and my own passion for what I do. And I think that was a really fundamental thing that sort of enabled us to be together. And then he just is, um, you know, he's, I don't even know where to start. I mean, he's half Swedish, half English. He's really together. He's really loving. He's supportive. He's a great father. He's a great husband. I mean, you know, he's, we obviously have our moments and, and, you know, as a married couple who doesn't, but I think overall, you know, the drama that I was so used to having in so many other relationships of constantly being sort of, you know, having to get in fights because I was never home or because a story meant more to me than a man or whatever, you know, that was just sort of taken off the table when I met Paul. And it just made me realize I had so much more available mental space to actually focus on life and work because I wasn't in this sort of drama, high drama relationship. It was just, we were really good friends. We were best friends and we happened to fall in love. And so I've just been really lucky because that has continued. <laughs> well, I just, I love reading about that, that part of the story. And it's, you know, again, as a young, you know, the, we look back at our time as younger women and it's, a, I'm, I'm a similar age as you. And so it's, it's, um, you know, it's just very, um, I, I love reading about I you mean, and your, your family. And <laughs> I mean, it's funny because I remember when, um, in 2015, when Warner brothers optioned, uh, my yes. memoir to become a movie there, you know, I was meeting with the producer and I was meeting at that point with Jennifer Lawrence and Steven Spielberg and all these people. And, and I remember the producer was like, actually all the women at Warner brothers want to meet Paul. <laughs> Yeah, they were like, they want to know who this man is, you know, and it was very funny. So, yeah. So I, uh, yeah. So that just makes me think like, so if, if you could have anybody in the world play Paul <laughs> in said movie, <laughs> who would that be? God, I don't know. I have no idea. I mean, actually, ironically, all the people who have sort of taken my role haven't really talked that much about Paul. So, yeah. Um, are yeah. we going to see, is that movie going to, going to happen? Are we going to see it? Do we know? I don't know. It's still kind of, um, I think it's turned now, uh, to a series rather than a movie. Um, and so we'll see. Yeah. It's yeah. Out there. What did that, but what did that, what, who approached you or how did that play out? Like, I mean, that just oh my this God. concept that's of like having a, having episode. a movie. I mean, <laughs> that's it that's a very long story but I I I, I or what did it mean to you yeah yeah um I basically when the memoir came out by the time the book came out there were already a few producers who were interested and um uh Andrew Lazar who ended up getting the option with Warner Brothers and bringing on board Steven Spielberg and Jennifer Lawrence was one team and then um, Reese Witherspoon and Universal were interested and um, Harvey Weinstein was interested. And so there was sort of a bidding war. 
And, um, and really when Jen and Steven signed up, that was kind of, it became kind of a no brainer. And so it took, they had the option for, uh, four years. Um, and the option just came up actually last year. And so that's when I sort of was more interested in looking at a series. So that's kind of where it's at. Fascinating. I mean, it just, yeah, well, I, we, of course, production in Hollywood is on hold right now. Um, right. So, right. Um, so we look forward to, you know, to seeing where that goes. Um, I, I was curious, I, I was reading a story about um, of yours where at the time you were saying that it was uh, one of the most emotionally challenging stories of your 20 plus year career. And this is, um, I mean, there's a lot, obviously there's a lot of um, death uh, that is, mm -hmm. comes about in the type of work that you do. Um, and this story, I'm not sure how to pronounce her name, um, Marika, Marik, um, in terms of um, euthanasia um, and, um, and I'm wondering if you could tell us about that story. Um, and you broke up a little bit, which, story oh, I'm sorry. It? It's um, okay. it, I'm not sure how to pronounce her name. Uh, Marika, um, oh, Marike. Marike. Oh, um, uh. and, and just what, in terms of this being one of the most challenging stories of your of your career at the time. Um, yeah. and you, 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 um, were following her for quite some time. Is that correct? Yeah. I think one of the, I think what sort of set the story of Marike apart, there were a few things. I think, first of all, um, you know, I ended up, when I met Marike, I had no idea where the story was going. I was assigned it for the New York times, um, and she was a very decorated Paralympic athlete. She had won four Paralympic medals, one gold, two silver, a bronze. She, 10 years prior, she had done the paperwork for euthanasia and because she had a degenerative muscular disease and it was getting progressively worse and she lived, uh, in constant excruciating pain and had debilitating seizures and would vomit and pass out and, um, she lived in an assisted living complex in an apartment when I met her and had just retired from professional sports. And so, um, I didn't really know where the story was going, but the New York times said, go meet her, you know, let's just go with it for a while. And so I ended up spending almost three years with her and really, you know, she lived in Belgium. So I would take the Eurostar and, and go back and forth really often, actually, from London and just hang out and really document uh, her life. And the story for me as a photographer became about what does someone's life look like uh, in order to want to leave that life? Like how bad how bad was it for her and what, why, why did she choose to do euthanasia? And so I would just stay at her house, sleep on the couch because it was the only way I could document her having seizures in the middle of the night, uh, and in pain. And we grew really close. We became very, very close friends. Um, and maybe too close. I mean, as a journalist, we're not supposed to get close to our subjects, but 
I mean, if you ask me to spend three years sleeping on someone's couch and documenting their life, I will get close to that person. Also, because I think in order to ask permission to be there when they end their life in a room with, you know, a handful of people who have known her almost her whole life, you know, I, what would set me apart? So I think, um, yeah, we ended up getting very close and she ended her life on October 22nd last year and I was in the room and it was really sad. It was really hard. And I, I imagine this is also a, a question that you get um, quite often uh, and, and people who are tuning in are, are asking it as well. Um, but is, you know, how... How do you, this is what this Jonatas uh, Pontes in particular has written this question, how do you keep your mind healthy after seeing so many terrible things? And I would say to that, your mind and your heart. Yeah. Um, well, I think there are a few things. It's a question I get pretty often. I think, first of all, um, we probably have to back up to my family because I have like an extraordinary family. I have three older sisters, my parents. Um, my mom, my dad, his husband, Bruce, I have my husband, I have my, my husband's family. Everyone in my life is incredibly supportive and empowered and support. Like they're just incredible. And so I think having that base of support and love and, you know, to fall back on just gives me a strength that, um, to witness what I do. I think, um, you know, there are things I do in my daily life to help keep me happy and stable. And a lot of that has to do with exercise. Um, I'm sort of fanatical about exercise. And I think it's because for me, it's like my meditation. It keeps my endorphins going. It makes me happy, um, as basic as that seems. And I think it's also important for me to communicate um, to talk about what I'm seeing and to talk to people that I trust and that I love about what I'm going through. And so I think there are many different things, but those are some of the things that I do. Uh, thank you for bringing up your family. Cause I, I did want to, um, talk about <laughs> them. You know, I, I, have. Uh, you 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 talk about having sort of this unconventional childhood um, in your books and um, and I, what I appreciated and I wrote this down was you know that you saying now I go into all these situations and I really don't feel like I judge people I just mm. accept people for who they are and record their stories can can you talk a little bit more about how sort of your your growing up has uh, you know maybe affected your ability to not judge people or just to, to be there and yeah. be to be bear witness. Yeah. I think like, I think my childhood obviously sort of shaped who I am. And I, and I grew up, I was raised by hairdressers and we had sort of an open door house and, uh, kind of everyone was welcome. And particularly the people who lived like on the margins of society in the seventies and eighties. And now I'm really dating myself, but like, you know, people who, um, who just sort of were really creative and artistic people and who didn't necessarily subscribe to sort of a conventional life. And I think for me, that was the norm growing up. And my parents were amazing in that they just welcomed everyone. And there was always just a real feeling of sort of love in our house and creativity. And I think that that fostered sort of my ability to be able to go meet people no matter who they are, 
I don't care where you're, you know, I don't, I will not, you know, I'll ask you questions to inform my work, but I won't judge you because to each his own, you know, for me, that's sort of the way I was raised and that's what I believe. And so, you know, I think it's, it, it's a really great quality uh, for any journalist to have or anyone who does what we do, who basically asks people to open up and to share their most intimate moments, because obviously that person has to feel comfortable. Do you think your ability to make people comfortable or to to create that connection, um, what do you think it is about you um, that you are able to do that? Um, is it an energy? I'm, is it a, yeah. What I is don't it? know. I mean, I'm not on the receiving end of myself, right? I mean, I have no Have you idea. been told? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think probably because I'm pretty like honest. I mean, I'm very straightforward and I'm pre and I'm also really empathetic and I, and I really care. And I think people sense that. And, and I think people sense that it's not just about, you know, getting a good picture. It's about everything. It's about really trying to understand that person, understand what they're going through. You know, I get really emotional when I'm shooting. You know, if I spend a lot of time with someone, I'm crying with them, I'm laughing. I mean, I'm a very kind of, you know, passionate person. And so I think that that comes across, but I don't know ultimately what it is that lets, you know, makes people open up to me. You're Italian. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I um, I I think that that characteristic though of empathy and um, that ability to just be real is what somebody would mm. you know need to to be and to do the type of work you know that you do and I I think it's interesting that you talk about releasing that those emotions whether it's crying or laughing or what have you because I think it's when you hold that in you know, that, yeah. that's where the trouble sure. comes in sure. um, exactly. in terms of not processing things. But when you're sure. able to express yourself um, as you do, um, then, you know, that's that's another way to be working through whatever it is in life. You know, as creatives, we do have a lot of sure. you know, internal struggles um, yeah. often. Yeah. And so those, you know, that empathy for yourself, too, is super so important. Uh, I want to talk about your nanny uh, because <laughs> for people who don't know, your nanny is 107. She is and, 107. And my mom was playing cards with her yesterday. And I think my nanny won. <laughs> yeah. So um, I have great genes. Yeah. Um, you know, my grandmother, um, I can't believe I'm 46 years old and I have a grandmother who's still alive. I mean, it's amazing. And um, she's of Italian descent. Um, she was not born in Italy, but she, her parents were. Um, and grew up really poor in New Haven and New Haven, Connecticut, and now lives in North Haven, Connecticut. And she just turned 107. And, you know, she's, she's, uh, she's been through this pandemic and, you know, <laughs> yeah. It, it's, um, it, and for people who don't know, you can go find some of these, uh, on Lindsay's, um, Instagram or Facebook videos, but she became a meme when she was 102 yeah. and blowing out her, her birthday candles and her yeah. dentures falling out. Um, and your sister made a little, um, a little documentary, documentary. about her too. I mean, she's yeah. four, four foot four. 
I mean, I don't even know. Every time we see her, she shrinks. And of or course, because... Four, or whatever. It, no, she's not 5'4". No, four, four. She's 4'4". Four, four, four. Four, four. Yes. <laughs> no, I'm only 5'1". Yeah. And I'm yeah, like yeah, at yeah. my prime. <laughs> you know? so, she, um, but every time we see her, she sort of shrinks, you know? I mean, she's really, she's tiny. I mean, she's like barely at the counter now. I mean, she's really short. So, I, one of the videos that you have, um, she says, I, I worked all my life. And I'm, I'm curious what everyone in my family, what, yeah, where that work ethic I uh, think or what you learned about yourself. Yeah. Well, I think we, you know, it's the real, my, my other grandmother, you know, came to Ellis Island on the boat from Southern Italy, from Bari. And, you know, I was raised, uh, my, ans my ancestors are hundred percent Italian. They're all Italian and they all one way or another came to America because of poverty. And so the work ethic that has been instilled in my grandparents and my parents and in us is extraordinary. I mean, I, you know, I, I will work until I can't stand up. I mean, I've worked, I have back problems and I have a few herniated discs in my spine. I mean, I've literally landed at a refugee camp in, in Kenya and could not walk, like couldn't even walk. And I literally took so many muscle relaxers to continue to be able to work. I mean, the work ethic is like, it would never dawn on me to not work, you know? So I think, I think that probably comes from just my background. You know, my parents are the same. My mom is 80, my dad's 79, and they still work all the time. And so, I mean, I think it's just, yeah, that's sort of the way my family is. Do you think it takes that to be a photojournalist? Yes. Yes. I mean, unless you're just, I mean, I think so, because I think that there, you know, there's so little work and there is a lot of talent and there, there are not that many venues anymore. And there certainly is not a lot of money anymore. Um, so I think you really have to hustle and have that kind of belief in what you're doing. I want to go back to um, it, this in the little bit of time that we have left um, to your second book, um, the of love, a love and war. I'm going to pull it up again. <laughs> Showgirl Bye. for you. Thanks. Um, um, like Vanna White. I know. <laughs> um, I'm curious what you again you you in the book is not only over 200 images um, from your career, but these um, notes and and um, letters and journals and uh, and I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about what you learned about yourself um, through the process of putting this book together. Um, well, first of all, I did not, I really shied away from doing a book for many, many years. Um, I, you know, that is my first collected, you know, solo book of photography. And I've been doing this for 24 years. You know, a lot of photographers sort of photograph for a year and do a book, you know, I just never... I'm sort of tortured by my own work and I don't, I never think it's good enough. I, I literally spent years just sort of plowing ahead and photographing around the world and never really looking back. Um, and so I think when, when, um, when I was kidnapped in Libya, the natural, and I knew I wanted to sort of just step back and recalibrate and figure out like what was next. Um, knowing I would keep photographing, but just sort of figure out how I would cover war. And, um, 
ironically, I ended up writing a book before doing a photo book. And so that sort of speaks to how ambivalent I was to put this body of work out there. And so um, when I started thinking about actually doing a photo book, I worked with a book designer, Stuart Smith, who was amazing. He's in London. And and I sort of just dumped like 10,000 images on him and was like, okay, what do you think? And then we went back and forth for about a year before I even sort of talked to Penguin about doing a book. And Anne Godoff, who is the, um, who's at Penguin Random House, and she had done my memoir. And so she was really emphatic about wanting to do the photo book and supporting that as well, which was incredible, of course, because a photo book is usually a project of love. But I also knew that um, it wasn't just going to be about photos, because for me, I'm not just a photographer, you know, so I, I do a lot of reporting. I, I write a lot. I, I, you know, for me, they go hand in hand. And so I did want to include sort of my growth, my mental growth, you know, and what better way to do that than through personal letters, which are embarrassing at times and really kind of like, my God, I was so naive and so young and whatever, but that's part of the process. You know, I think you have to have, um, a little humility in this profession to be able to kind of move forward and to learn. And so I think that was a really important part of doing this book. Well, I, I think it's, first of all, for me, it's, it's, it's fascinating to hear you say you didn't think you're, you know, you, not thinking your work is good enough, you know, or this, you know, imposter syndrome, as you know, a lot of people call it um, in, in terms of, um, you know, why is it that I was talking to Christina Mittermeier, um, had her on the podcast and, you know, she as well was, you know, saying, you know, when she put together, you know, one of her books and, and just saying like, I feel like they're going to figure me out, you know, <laughs> someone's going to figure me out, you know, and it's like, yeah. what, what is, what do you, why do you think that is? I don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, I guess I just, um, I, you know, we all have standards for ourselves and I just never want to be that person who kind of just thinks I've gotten there and that my work is good enough. You know, I just think that I can, there's always room to be a better storyteller, um, and to be a better photographer. And so I guess I felt like when you stop and put images down in something so permanent as a book, what does that mean? You know? And so I was hesitant about doing that, you know, now I've done it and I'm so happy I did that. And now I look forward again, you know? Well, I think that's the thing is it, and you mentioned it in that, you know, in the, in the beginning of the book is having the time to sit with the images, you know, mm. over time mm -hmm. and see, mm -hmm. you know, what sticks for you. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think those, and I think those things can, can live together in terms of yeah. like always striving, you know, for, for yeah. growth, but also, you know, that, that stopping and reflecting on, on what you, what you have accomplished. Sure. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm wondering, um, I want to end on, uh, there's this, this African proverb that I have, um, that I cut out of a magazine when I was there. And um, it says, the eyes never forget what the heart has seen. The eyes never forget what the heart has seen. Hmm. And I'm, mm -hmm. and, hmm. and it speaks to me as in terms of, you know, looking at your work and can you talk a little bit just more about your, 
seeing with your heart and how, how that's, if you see that reflected in your work. I mean, I see everything with my heart. It's a, it's sort of what we talked about before is that I, I, I feel very deeply what I'm shooting. You know, I don't, I, um, I don't go into things just sort of stoically, you know, that's just not who I am. Um, I certainly, um, you know, I, I always try to maintain my journalistic integrity and to cover everything the way, you know, but, but I have feelings and I have, you know, I have sort of a, you know, a real sense in my soul when I, when I see something and I, and I feel it and I, I guess, yeah, I always see with my heart. Well, thank you. I just have to say thank you so, so much, Lindsay, for, um, speaking to our audience, um, before I read off some of the, the comments of uh, where people have been tuning in from and where they are, I wanna make sure everybody knows uh, how to follow you, where to find you, where to find your books and all of that. Of course, we'll have the show, uh, the links in the show notes, but where can people find you and follow you? Uh, I am on Instagram, so it's Lindsay Adario, L-Y-N-S-E-Y-A-D-D-A-R-I-O. Um, same for Twitter, Lindsay Adario. Um, and yeah, National Geographic, New York Times, those are the two main New York Times magazine. Those are the clients that I usually work for. But I usually post everything on Instagram or Twitter. Awesome. I highly encourage anybody who is not yet following Lindsay to, to go do so. And Lindsay, I just want to give some shout outs uh, to people um, who who have been tuning in. Uh, we said Jennifer Rice says uh, that your book was her motivation to sell everything in the U.S., get a one way ticket to Europe and <laughs> roam around with my camera and carry on. I'm says, sure her parents love me. <laughs> <laughs> she says so inspiring. Um, Ellie Lenz in New York says um, that your work has inspired him for years. Um, and we have Andrew, who's been watching from Atlanta, Nelk from the Netherlands. Uh, Sarah O'Neill says, what a genuine, compassionate, brave, and inspiring life you've experienced, Lindsay. Incredible. Ronit, who is from, who's saying shalom from Haifa, Israel. Uh, we have uh, Elle in California, and on and on and on. Um, we have Lithuania, Ottawa, Canada, wow. Denmark, wow. Shimla, India, South Africa. So Amazing. Um, Okay. Yeah, so I just um, want to say thank you so much thank again um, yeah. for the work that you do um, and for joining us here today. Um, I you. am just eternally grateful. As like I said, you're like thank my you. personal hero. And so thank you. Thank <laughs> having having you on um, and, and inspiring our community um, is, is just you. very, very special. So and congratulations again on uh, today's New York Times cover. Thanks. Um, thank you so much. Oh, you're, and, and so everybody, thank you again for tuning in. Um, you can continue to see what's coming up next on Creative Live, uh, creativelive.com slash TV. If you're watching there, you can scroll down and see um, the upcoming shows. And of course, you can see uh, and listen to all of the episodes of We Are Photographers on creativelive.com slash podcast. And um, the comments keep coming in, Lindsay, Janet, <laughs> but I will, um, I will sign off for now to everybody out there and say, we'll see you all next time. Thank you again for tuning in. And thank you so much to Lindsay Dario. Thank you. 
I'm Kenna Klosterman, and you've been listening to the We Are Photographers podcast from Creative Live. We originally recorded this episode live on Creative Live TV. That's our new live stream to entertain, inspire, and connect us all, coming from the living rooms, kitchens, and home studios of the world's top creators. Check out what's playing now and upcoming shows on creativelive.com TV. Be sure to follow Lindsay Adario on Instagram and Twitter at Lindsay Adario and find her work and books on her site, lindsayadario.com. All of those links are in the show notes. At Creative Live, we believe there's a creator and a photographer in all of us. And yes, that means you. If you're looking to get fresh perspectives, inspiration, or skills to boost your hobbies, business, or life, head over to creativelive.com and check out the creator pass. That's our subscription that gives you access to over 2,000 classes on demand. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review We Are Photographers wherever it is you listen to podcasts. We'd love to hear from you, and a five-star review goes a long way. And if you like this episode, tell someone about it. Word of mouth is the best way for us to reach more creators just like you. You can stay up to date with everything happening at Creative Live by following us on social media at Creative Live everywhere. And if you have requests for who you'd like me to feature on the podcast, send me a message at Kenna Klosterman on Instagram and at Kenna K Photo on Twitter. Thank you again to Lindsay Adario, and I'll see you all next week for another episode of We Are Photographers. <laughs>